This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Paul Tibbetts, the VA Executive Director of the Office of Technical Integration. Paul, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me. Sure. Sure. Let's start with the beginning here. The Veterans Affairs Department worked with the Underwriters Laboratory through something called a CRADA. And really the goal of this effort, which was a research and development effort in many ways, was to take a better look at cybersecurity of medical devices. And this has been a growing concern, not just at VA, but really across the entire healthcare sector. Let me maybe start with Paul with this. Walk me through this decision to work with uh, the Underwriters Laboratory and give me a quick definition of, of a CRADA besides the Cooperative Research and Development Agreement. Well, that's what the uh, name applies. It's a, an acronym, but uh, it's basically a contract where no money exchanges hands is what it amounts to. So the VA and some other entity, in this case, Underwriters Laboratories, uh, comes together around a specific problem or, or interest. One party agrees to contribute a bunch of things. Another party agrees to contribute a bunch of things. It could be artifacts, it could be time, it could be experts, et cetera. And then there's an agreed-upon set of deliverables uh, that comes out of it. We signed the agreement, and we're off and running. That's a cooperative research and development agreement. We did that since we, we had that authority. We did that with uh, Underwriters Laboratory in this case in conjunction with the uh, lead uh, for medical devices for the Veterans Health Administration, uh, Mr. Kurt Fink. And uh, we did this in recognition of the fact that uh, cybersecurity and medical devices are an interesting area. The, the, the relationship of those, cybersecurity to medical devices, is a very interesting area uh, where, uh, I guess, a certain amount of risk, it would behoove all of us for, to reduce a certain amount of that risk in the future. So Underwriters Laboratories, of course, is in the business of setting standards for industry to comply with. Uh, the reason the battery in your cell phone doesn't catch fire is because it's uh, certified by Underwriters Laboratory uh, to have the right technology that it won't do that, et cetera, et cetera, or, your, or the lights on your Christmas tree, for that matter. So Underwriters Laboratory, uh, having that position in industry, very interested in trying to set a, develop or a set of standards for cybersecurity for medical devices so that in the future, medical device manufacturers would have to demonstrate that they were able to comply with these standards in order to get the underwriter's laboratory approval with respect to cybersecurity for that device. From our perspective, uh, that looked uh, convergent, uh, I guess I can say, with uh, VA's interest because of our extensive use of medical devices and our belief that whatever we could do to move the medical device industry forward in baking security into the devices themselves, if I can say it that way, would appear, did appear and does appear to us to be a beneficial thing with respect to, uh, you know, moving industry and in that, to manufacturers in that direction. So that led to this collaboration. By the way, one of the partners also was the uh, uh, FDA. They were involved in this with us as well with the same reason, to, to do what we could in this instance, through this relationship with Underwriters Laboratory, to move medical device manufacturers in the direction of strengthening cybersecurity uh, of their devices at the time of manufacture. This is uh, Gary Stevens. 
What I would also say is that uh, the VA's done a significant amount of work to align itself with some of the common baselines that are oriented towards how we protect and manage our uh, environment using, for example, the NIST uh, 853 or the CNSSI 1253. Along those lines, I think one of the goals here as well was to ascertain whether or not the UL 2900 series of standards could be leveraged to support the establishment, if you will, of some baseline standards that everybody could rally around and utilize to enhance overall the cyber state of the medical devices. And so I think that was one of the inherent benefits associated with this effort as well. And do that in collaboration with, as Paul mentioned, the FDA, the VA, and UL, so that we could kind of raise the bar, if you will, on the expectations associated with medical devices and what uh, we would expect uh, them to comply with from a cybersecurity standpoint to help evolve and mature that the overall uh, uh, cyber state of those devices. Gary, let me ask you about the current state of medical devices. How scary is it? Is it any different than your computer at home? Is it any different than your mobile device? Or because of what medical devices do, meaning they potentially keep us alive or they could stop <laughs> stop our hearts from beating, that's why this is much more serious than maybe you know your, your laptop at home or something. That's exactly the point, right? It's the trust and integrity and consistency of the data exchange. It's the precision of the information. It's got to be valid. It's got to be accurate. It's got to be timely. And I think one of the uh, wonderful things that's happening within the environment today is that we're moving forward in such a dynamic way where it's not necessarily medical devices that are just solely unique to a, to a hospital. They're all over the place now. They're monitoring patients' health at home and reporting information back to a doctor through telehealth and the, and the like. So the complexity of the implementation itself of the medical devices and what they're designed to do and how they're designed to operate and how they must connect, I think adds a nuance to the environment that is really unique to medical devices in many ways. Um, and, and therefore, these types of initiatives along the lines of the CRADA, as well as aligning the common standards and engagement with the medical device community, is all the more important so that we can ensure that the medical devices and the cybersecurity that gets overlaid on top of those is designed to, again, facilitate that integrity and consistency and precision of information. Open to either uh, Gary or Paul. Walk me through what did the UL and the VA and the FDA end up coming up with? Did they decide that the standard, that the 2900 series standards is good enough? Was, do we have to write a new standard? Walk me through some of the findings. This is Paul. I'll start off with that. First of all, uh, the group that worked together on this, all the participants you heard us name already, uh, examined the uh, current VA policies and the current UL standards. And uh, as a result of that examination, um, uh, UL uh, is going to undertake to better align their standards to what the national NIST and other governing documents are so that their standards are more robust. So when industry uh, demonstrates compliance with them, which the standards would require, by the way, the industry will therefore be more closely aligned with the governing documents and policies uh, and security protections and whatnot that Gary just alluded to. So I would also add another benefit of this is as a result of UL undertaking to do that with their own standards, they are also members of standard-setting bodies like ANSI. So through their membership in standard-setting bodies, they can actually uh, 
further propagate those standards uh, across industry. VA, as a result of this, also became a, a voting member of the UL standard-setting body. So from here on out, we can sort of continue this ongoing collaboration with UL uh, going forward so that as the federal policy evolves and as we learn more about cybersecurity, that can be reflected in the future modifications to those same standards. And again, of course, we crosswalked our own policies uh, to those, our uh, VA Directive 6500 and 6555, and uh, made whatever tweaks were necessary as a result of that. And then uh, uh, I think lastly, UL developed a set of, I don't know, criteria, I guess you can say, which a, a manufacturer would have to go through in order to earn the certification. So weakness and vulnerability scanning, evaluation of product source code, et cetera, et cetera. Fuzz testing, there's a, a list of those. In other words, so a manufacturer could not just say assert that they're compliant, but they would actually have to go through these demonstrations in order to gain the certificate. So I'd say from that perspective, we view the endeavor as uh, completely successful. Now, given the scope of what we intended to do. Now, ultimately, what the impact on the industry will be and if this will really move industry in this direction and how quickly, of course, remains to be seen. But uh, from our perspective, it's a very positive step you know, in the right direction. This is uh, Gary Stevens. I would, in a nutshell, also say that the UL 2900 standards really was designed and, and it was um, obvious that it significantly strengthened pre procurement uh, kind of process that would be followed to adopt the medical devices, but it's one of many activities that needs to happen, right? And that would be associated with, it's good that it, that a particular medical device would comply with that particular standard, but it all comes down also to the implementation within the various environment and how it connects and ties. So that's also one of the, uh, I think, outcomes of the assessment is that it's part of a holistic, comprehensive process, right? That it's pre-procurement, actual installation, and then monitoring and, and the like. So it's it's all those pieces playing in tandem with one another. But as it relates to this particular effort, I think it was a, it's a phenomenal move forward to enact a common kind of standard that everyone can kind of rally around. We have to take a quick break. My guests today are Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Dr. Paul Tibbetts, the Executive Director of VA's Office of Technical Integration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Dr. Paul Tibbetts, the Executive Director of the Office of Technical Integration at Veterans Affairs. One of the things that comes to mind right away is this idea of how long it will take to implement. First of all, I don't know if you guys have an idea about that. If UL give you any sort of, hey, it's going to take us a year to write it, then it has to go through the you know normal kind of vetting process, and then we can start. And then it may take a couple years for manufacturers to get on board. And then secondly, in the meantime, obviously, Gary and Paul, you guys, VA is not doing nothing. You guys aren't standing still. You're not waiting for this to, to come to fruition. There's plenty, obviously, that, that you guys are doing to protect medical devices. So I guess that's the second half of the question. What are you guys doing in the meantime? So maybe start with that first part is how long – do you have any idea of, of, by working with UL, how long it will take to get this up and running and, and get this uh, – to really start making a bigger difference? 
I'd be speculating, but I think it's going to be measured in a, a, a short number of years. Uh, the reason I say that is uh, manufacturers have to come to understand it, then they have to change their manufacturing processes, their uh, governance processes. As I said, there are certain things that they would have to demonstrate in order to get a UL sticker. Well, my guess would be many in industry aren't yet prepared to do that. So there's a lot of, I think, retooling that industry would have to go through to comply with this. I would say to come to answer your question, however, uh, you know, so we don't march off blindly into Mission Impossible here, is we in VA put a lot of energy and a lot of stock in something we call market research. So we would be sort of pulsing the market all the time to see uh, how fast are they moving in this direction and when can we make these absolute, uh, these UL things, absolute uh, requirements versus um, encouragement and so forth and so on. We have to be cognizant every day, as you mentioned, because we're not standing still as to how, what the exact status of industry is and what the art of the possible is. So, but by putting this out there, by this kind of interaction, by engaging with FDA and whatnot, we're creating a buzz, if you will, around these standards. It's going to move industry in that direction. We're ready to do the research necessary to figure out how fast that is, so we're practical about it. Uh, but at this point, beyond what I said, I wouldn't. I, I don't think I could get more specific about the timeline. Uh, Gary, your thoughts? I don't know that we can speak specifically about the timeline as well. I'm, I'm absolutely in line with what uh, uh, Dr. Tibbetts just indicated. I, I think it's going to be an evolution that takes place. But I would say what we're doing in the interim is not just waiting for this to be an output, right? I mean, we're independently engaging medical device manufacturers to understand how they're managing cybersecurity within their particular realm as part of the overall development process itself. Understanding that, seeing where there's conformity and, and uh, differences, and seeing what, uh, how we can work possibly with FDA and other federal entities to uh, better mature those, those overall capabilities. I'd also say that uh, internally we're establishing processes uh, that will kind of, in essence, form the, the means by which we assess the overall health and safety and, and uh, cybersecurity state, if you will, of that particular uh, medical device as it interacts within the VA landscape. And that's through establishment of policies and procedures and operational activities that we've also shared with, with industry in many instances so that we get their perspective on whether or not those particular processes are too draconian or, or can be implemented or, or are sound and make sense. And then um, I'd also say that we're obviously maturing the way in which we're able to manage uh, the devices within our network and how we can get more uh, relevant information and insight and visibility into the ongoing status of those particular devices from a cybersecurity standpoint. There was a massive amount of work that was done to ensure that the medical devices were, in essence, segmented off uh, within the network so that those medical devices were able to do specifically what they were designed to do without um, any possible other interactions with other network devices within the environment so that we didn't compromise them in any way. But also what that allowed us to do was to ensure that those devices, we could single them out and monitor them and, and manage them um, in a much better way. So I'd say that, um, you know, this, again, is, is a part of an evolution that's going to take um, several years to get to, but the VA is being proactive in, in uh, enforcing things today that make, make a big difference and help us ensure that the cybersecurity state of those devices is constantly being managed. Was there anything about the findings, the look into this effort to look at standards 
that surprised you or stood out to you walking into it, I, I would imagine VA probably had a pretty good idea of the effort. But give me a sense, if you can, about if, if there's anything from the work with the UL and the FDA that really that stood out to you guys. I can't say what stood out from a VA perspective, but I can just tell you personally what uh, surprised me because I really uh, hadn't had much reason to look into medical devices before we uh, uh, embarked on this uh, engagement with UL. But uh, the first thing that surprised me was the size of the market. That I've seen research here that uh, indicates maybe by 2023-ish time frame, this medical device market is likely to be in excess of a 60 billion B with a B billion dollar market. That to me is uh, huge. And um, also with something approaching, perhaps I've seen estimates as high as a 25% annual growth rate. So it seems large and and both uh, over time potentially explosive in growth. That was one aspect of this that certainly was personally enlightening. And uh, secondly, UL itself, other than, as I said earlier, seeing a sticker on a Christmas tree lights, I really wasn't very familiar with UL itself and uh, became familiar with it as a result of this. But uh, they evaluate in excess of 96,000 products. They have uh, relationships with the American National Standards Institute, with the Standard Council of Canada, with the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation as examples. And the other impressive thing to me about that is, despite all those relationships, one of the reasons they embarked on this work with us in the VA is, in none of those relationships could they find any cybersecurity standards for medical devices established anywhere. So that was what led them to embark on this collaboration with us. Gary, your thoughts? I would say that what surprised me most about it was just the overall differing perspectives on the general complexity of the environment itself, which really translates into what I think Dr. Tibbetts is talking about, is that, I mean, this is a massive market, uh, and these devices are of varying complexity and size and scale. You name it, it's out there. So I think the the scenario as it played out was how do you really tackle this problem and, and make something of sense and orient it around a common standard, I think that's really what was most surprising to me because it was very eye-opening to see just the overall size and complexity. That's actually a great segue because one of the things that you have to, when we think about this idea of medical device cybersecurity and, and vulnerabilities is how big of a concern is this today versus three years ago versus five years ago versus 20 years ago? Maybe I'll start with Gary since you're the deputy CISO. It kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. 20 years ago, we didn't necessarily have these kind of issues. The medical devices that were operating were specific to a hospital. You weren't necessarily being monitored from a medical device that was positioned within your home and sending data to the doctor on a routine basis as to your overall health and your sugar status or whatever else. So today's environment is much more complicated. There's a much more um, heterogeneous uh, kind of environment as far as how these medical devices have to uh, engage and interact, the overall complexity of of the medical devices themselves, what they do. I mean, you have everything from the the proton beams to standard little monitors that are are monitoring your, your, uh, your, your health at home. So it's really an enormous field. And so I'd, I'd say that the size and complexity that, that comes with that is really 
at the scale that it needs to operate at is really what is is such a difference from from what it was 20 years ago. But with that, I think it goes back to the same core set of principles that have to be applied that were applied back then need to be applied today is that what makes sense, what is the system designed to do, and how does that correlate with what you've done within your environment so that you can manage the overall security state. So I think it goes back to applying standard core principles of hygiene, et cetera, to ensure that those components are safe and secure and they do what they're supposed to do at the time with the level of precision they're designed to do. We have to take a quick break. My guests today are Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Dr. Paul Tibbetts, the Executive Director of VA's Office of Technical Integration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Dr. Paul Tibbetts, the Executive Director of the Office of Technical Integration at Veterans Affairs. You bring up an interesting point, core set of principles, cyber hygiene. Are medical devices any more difficult to ensure that they are patched up to date than, you know, again, I'll go back to a computer or a cell phone or, or even a, a, you know, a, a firewall on a network? Do you see a big difference between those two different types of technologies? Well, I'll start with that. Uh, Paul Tibbetts here. I would say definitely. And it's not really per se for technical reasons. Uh, it's more the uh, administration, administrative and management processes that uh, in the United States has wrapped around the outside of those medical devices. Once we buy a medical device, by and large, we, VA, or anybody that buys a medical device, have bought a black box. And having bought that black box, there's a bunch of rules and regulations wrapped around the outside of it that say, we can't get into that black box. So the patching of that black box, if it's done or not done, you name it, is 100% dependent on the manufacturer's willingness and ability to do that. That's not true with the computer on our desk, right? Uh, the thing on your desk, we control the image, we control the patching. Uh, we may have a manufacturer involved in there, but nonetheless, if we do, that's under our control, management control. Not so with medical devices. So yes, I would say it's a significantly more difficult or, or and different uh, challenge. I don't know. Gary, your thoughts there? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, what I would say is that, kind of going back to uh, Dr. Tibbetts' point, uh, is that if we patch a, a particular desktop on on a, a individual works at an individual workstation or something along those lines, there's not a life death scenario that plays out. There is with a medical device, possibly. And so there's really a very orchestrated activity that has to happen there with the medical device manufacturer ensuring that we're able to patch um, and that they've done the rigor and analysis to ensure that that particular patch is not going to break these very complicated and highly complex medical devices. So we can't do anything until that particular medical device manufacturer goes to the FDA, gets their thumbs up, and that we've gotten clearance from that manufacturer to patch that particular device. So what do we do in the interim to ensure that that device is protected and doing what it can do, realizing that the patch may fall behind in some instances, maybe a, a Windows patch or something along those lines. And I think that's really where we have to put a lot of due diligence in how we manage and monitor our environment and manage it uh, from, a, from a segmentation standpoint, et cetera, to ensure that that medical device does what it needs to do in a safe and secure way 
while we wait for the update or the patch to come from the particular vendor. And that's where I think this highly orchestrated dance has to happen to ensure that all the all the things that need to be done to ensure safety and security um, are, are done properly. Gary, has there been a time, and again, I'm not going to ask you for specifics, but generally speaking, when you've had an issue with a medical device and said, uh-oh, we better pull that off the network or we better somehow firewall it from getting onto the main network, we, it can still do what it needs to do, but only in that room or that part of the network. Have you, have you had those instances? Well, I think what we've done internally within the VA is to ensure that the medical devices are segmented off within the VA environment so that we are not subject to that kind of scenario playing out. By doing that segmentation, uh, we're able to ensure that that device does what it needs to do in a safe and secure way and that it's not necessarily subject to other, other activities that happen across the common network where patches are being pushed to the, medical, to, um, to the desktops and that sort of thing. So we're, we're able to keep it safe and secure. And so I'm not necessarily aware of any time of instance where we've had to pull a medical device because we're worried about a cybersecurity-specific issue because we've done that due diligence up front. Paul, I don't know if you have any perspective on that. No. Uh, I, I think you covered it. Our, our architecture is such that we have specifically set out to try to reduce that risk or avoid that uh, happenstance. And uh, it's, uh, I guess, in some form you could say compensating controls. But our architecture is designed from a – I'm going to say defense in depth perspective to try to uh, put those medical devices in a place where the risk of that becoming necessary is very, very small. Now, Gary, you addressed this a little bit by earlier on in our conversation when I asked you about what were you guys doing today, because obviously the UL standards could take some time to be implemented. I just want to kind of tag back to that. Because of the, the concerns or the risks of medical devices, you talked about segmentation of the network. You talked about working with manufacturers specifically. Uh, is there anything else you guys have been doing, whether it's from a continuous monitoring standpoint or from a another, another perspective where you are saying, okay, how do we ensure that we're not putting patients and or our own network at risk? What we have been doing is we've really looked at the architecture, how we manage our environment from a standard desktop kind of scenario to also medical devices and special purpose systems, and figured out how can we segment, manage those individual devices within the um, overall infrastructure itself to ensure that they're safe and operating properly. I'd also say that Part of that is to ensure that we've got the visibility that we need to, to understand what the current status is within each one of those various realms of the, of the infrastructure. And we've worked with uh, DHS as part of their larger continuous diagnostics and mitigation program to bring forward brand new technologies to help us do asset discovery better, to help us manage the environment uh, more holistically, to bring forward new capabilities to identify or address any types of gaps that we might have within the infrastructure. So it's been a very concerted effort to really understand what we can do and what we are doing today. Where have we enacted compensating controls? And where can we better um, bring forward new technologies or new capabilities or processes to enhance any types of gaps that we might see? And so it's been, I'd say, a multi-year effort to do precisely that. But as part of that effort, too, it's a, it's a dialogue that has to happen. It's a dialogue that has to happen with us, the medical device manufacturers, with the FDA, 
with HHS and, and the like to ensure that we are sharing ideas across the board on how we are managing these devices and that we can rally around a common set of principles. I think this is a, a, the CRADA itself is, is a quintessential example of that where I think this gives a rallying point for lots of different organizations to begin to subscribe to and, and use as one of many approaches to enhance overall uh, medical device security. Again, another great segue. Gary, you're making my job easy. Appreciate it. How are you guys at VA working with not just the FDA, but the Defense Department, Defense Health Agency, and even the private sector hospitals that you guys deal with day in and day out to kind of spread the word, not just about UL, but about you know ensuring that medical device uh, cybersecurity is being addressed, that we're just not plugging stuff into the network and, and hoping for the best. This is uh, Gary Stevens again. The uh, EHR, um, the Integrated Health Record Initiative that we're doing alongside DOD is a prime example of how we're engaging uh, uh, DHA, Defense Health Agency, in that in improving the overall cyber state. There is a cross-collaboration that's happening in conjunction with that larger um, EHR deployment, Integrated Health Record deployment, to ensure that we are sharing ideas back and forth, that we're looking at how we architect our environment and seeing there's, if there's commonalities, see if there's uh, capabilities to leverage what each other does from a, both a medical device monitoring standpoint, from a uh, deployment of architectures and how we, in essence, zone those particular uh, medical devices in a, in, a, in a consistent way, and then how we can um, apply additional capabilities, everything from behavioral analytics to common uh, monitoring uh, solutions that we would use within, internally within our environments. So combined with that, uh, we've engaged some of our FFRDC partners to look at how we can possibly enact some standards for medical devices as well that would leverage what, was, what, what happened with the CRADA and through direct engagement and assessment of those medical devices. And so uh, lots of different things that are happening to um, improve the overall uh, cyber health of the medical devices. Paul, I don't know if you have any additional context. Uh, yeah, Paul Tibbetts here. Yeah, just to add a, a few additional uh, thoughts here. Uh, of course, the the report itself is available and will be on the Underwriters Laboratory website. But uh, in addition to that, I was just going to add that uh, one of the co-sponsors of this work that we did uh, is the VA lead for medical device procurement across uh, all of VA. That's uh, Mr. Kurt Fink. So. Uh, He's now in a you know, better position, I think, to take this report and through market research and other mechanisms, collaboration, figure out exactly how hard to push or not push with respect to industry readiness to actually deliver and be compliant with these kinds of standards. So he's in a very, very good position to promulgate this uh, body of standards uh, in a way that is practical with respect to what the market is ready or nearly ready to deliver. So I would say that's another um, important, I guess you could say, dissemination mechanism uh, through our own uh, procurement channels with respect to uh, medical device acquisitions. And we will also link to that report on federalnewsnetwork.com to make things easier as well. All right. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really do appreciate your time. So let me thank my guests, Gary Stevens, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, and Dr. Paul Tibbetts, the Executive Director of VA's Office of Technical Integration. Gary, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
In this segment of the show, I caught up with Congressman Jim Langevin about the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission report. There's a recommendation in there to create a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And I think this is something that maybe has been missing from the discussion over the last 15 or 20 years around cybersecurity is trying to prove the value of cyber. It's always the, well, you can't prove something that didn't happen. What's the value of something that didn't happen? I think statistics is probably the best way to do it. So first of all, walk me through a little bit about that recommendation. Was this something that you had gotten behind? How did it come to fruition kind of during the Solarium discussion? This is something I've been talking about for several years now. And what would always been gnawing at me is, you know, okay, if we do what we think is adopting cybersecurity best practices and, and the latest technology, or even adopting the NIST framework, just by way of example, how do we know that we're going to be that much more cyber secure? And the reality is we really would be better served to have hard data to make informed policy decision or or for CEOs uh, and uh, CFOs and CISO, uh, when they're making their, their recommendations, making their decisions about what type of cybersecurity technologies to purchase and deploy, that we had hard data to back up what will make them that much more cybersecure. So it just makes sense that we, we have this recommendation to, to create a, uh, and the information and incentive structure for is it the private sector that better, better value uh, cybersecurity and make business decisions that reflect that. It would help government as well in the same type of decisions. So one of the recommendations is creation of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. We basically, as I've said before, we can't understand what we can't measure. And, and currently there's a very dearth of uh, robust and, and consistent data. So the, the Bureau of Cyber Statistics uh, statistics recommendation basically proposes that we set up an independent agency within the Department of Commerce to collect, process, analyze, and, and disseminate statistical data uh, on cybersecurity, uh, cyber incidents, and the cyber ecosystem. And uh, basically, and, and equally important is that uh, here that we, we should, the, the data should be anonymized and basically should be publicly available. You mentioned that you had, uh, this was an idea that you've had maybe for some time. Had you ever tried to introduce it in legislation? Have you ever brought it up to in, in other reports that we've, you've been a part of uh, other commissions over the last, uh, you know, 8, eight 10, 12 years? No, I don't think we've, uh, we've done anything in terms of actually proposing the creation of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And, you know, I, I've been trying to get my arms around what the best route to go is. And it's certainly more and more we discussed it within the context of the commission. It's... It, uh, this is how it got formalized. But you know, the, the idea of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics is not a new idea. You know, the, the need for metrics has been harping on need for, for a while. And a good example, by the way, of you know, how policymakers need good data to make good policy uh, would be if you looked at uh, the model would be the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which provides solid data for, for industry and policymakers uh, for example, on, on things like uh, unemployment and uh, and really that helps set policy and business practices. So really benefits of the office in both government and industry. And, uh, and this is something I really champion in the, uh, the initiative as an, as an initiative in the Cyber Slayer uh, Commission. You think about it, you know, we, we want the uh, CISOs and 
the CFOs to be talking the same language you know, when they're talking to the CEO and, and we want everybody to be able to understand what it is that we're, what we're trying to get across here. And, and so that's why it just makes sense to, to have this type of a, of a structure in place. This idea of, of creating a, a bureau, how would it work? I mean, do, do you get a sense? I know this commission doesn't necessarily go into that type of detail, but if it was, you, and I know the commission report said it could be set up in commerce or wherever is most appropriate, but do you get a sense of how it would work, where it would collect data from? Walk me through some ideas. So it would be created in the, the Department of, of Commerce, and they would be charged with collecting and processing and analyzing and disseminating the statistical data. Uh, on cybersecurity, on cyber incidents, and the, the cyber ecosystem, and, and then in, in, in anonymize the data, and then, and then make it uh, publicly uh, available. But that's the, the the goal around it is to help kind of everybody see the, the the same data and hopefully come to the same maybe the same conclusions. But one idea in, in terms of data collection, one idea is that we basically is that uh, we have is requiring insurers to provide data on uh, when they pay a claim. And that would help us to understand exactly what happened and, and you know, what type of uh, mechanisms were in place you know, it, it, to protect the organization's cyber networks and what worked and what didn't. But it also required government incident data to feed into it as well. You brought up this idea of um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics as one model. Uh, is there another model that you would also point to that could this could build off of? You know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is one that, that comes to mind first. That's a just, well-known entity. I was thinking a little bit about car accidents and, and Bureau of the Transportation folks when there's a trans, when there's an accident. Um, you know, uh, well, did this car have airbags? Did it have a front braking system? Then all of that data gets collected that shows, I, I didn't know if there was a transportation one. That's what I was kind of going down that path of. I'm sure that there probably okay. is. I was um, thinking economic data is probably the closest you know, to what we're talking about. But I, 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 as I recall, to the, the, the NTSB has some elements too, but they, you know, they do investigations, whether it's FAA or uh, NTSB. This bureau would not. That's not what we're proposing here. Correct. And I wouldn't think so. I mean, this is purely a statistical organization that can share that information. Do you think that there's an appetite to set something like this up? I mean, given all the data breaches we've seen over the last you know, five, seven years, this idea of, of proving the value of cybersecurity, people seem to, to get behind that. But, right, will lawmakers or others go f- far enough to want to set something up that will actually collect the statistics? Do you get a sense? I think that there, if people, as big policymakers or decision makers, are in fact hungry for, uh, for a, this type of data to help them make informed decisions. I've used the example before where a lot of times maybe the, the CISO and the CFO speak different languages. They talk past each other in some ways. And basically it would help businesses on the understand cyber risk in business terms. You know, in addition to the legislative front, we also you know, can work with the FCC to help companies understand you know, what their obligations would they have under, say, the cyber and Oxby rules and uh, basically understand cyber risk and their, their internal, their internal risk, their internal financial controls. But, uh, you know, and by the way, insurers desperately uh, need uh, this type of data. 
it would help them as they're writing their policies and uh, they can say okay they know uh, by way of the data that's collected and being analyzed that they can determine okay if you employ these type of tools uh your your insurance risk is here if you're you know if you unless if you don't invest enough in these tools or you invest tools that are less effective then you know you have another level of uh of insurance premium so it would it would definitely help insurers to better assess risk and, and write policy. You know, in, in many ways, it's it's what we see with you know the the auto industry. We see it with other insurance industries as well. Where if you buy you know a, a car uh, that has a V six engine, that's a sports car, maybe your insurance is a little higher. And if you're a male, if you're a female, <laughs> it may be a little different. But yeah. if you buy a minivan that's very safe with all the extra features and you're a very safe driver, your insurance rates go down. That's why I think that this is, it's a fascinating idea because I think it's really speaking to the big issue that we haven't been able to get to over the years, which is what's the value of cybersecurity? Right. It's, it's like the, the argument of why did we finally start adding seatbelts in cars, right? Well, they finally had hard data to show that in accidents where the, the, the driver, the passenger was wearing a seatbelt, uh, lives were saved, injuries were reduced, and so it just became self-evident at that point as to why seatbelts were added in cars. We want to have that same level of visibility, transparency, and, and the cybersecurity uh, tools throughout the year and what will uh, keep us safe and which ones are less effective. Uh, you know, right now, I think a lot of people act on, on gut, that you know, instinct, uh, or it might be a sales pitch of, of you know, why you should adopt a new cybersecurity uh, protection or tool. But there's a big question sometimes as to, well, how do you know? Uh, for example, if, you, if a company adopts two-factor authentication, you know, if, if you can show that you know, it's going to buy down your risk and, and you're, you're going to take care of 80% uh, of your, your cyber uh, vulnerabilities and your problems if you have two-factor authentication, that to me would be, uh, for example, a, 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 a tool that would come highly recommended and, and that would, would make everyone more cyber secure. But absent that data, you know, the policymakers, decision makers have to say, how do you know? What's your plans with not just this idea of uh, the Bureau of Cyber Statistics, but more broadly, the Cyber Solarium Report? Hopefully, we'll be by this coronavirus crisis that we're facing sooner rather than later, although. Uh, it looks like you know we're 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 a good several weeks out before that happens. But once we do get back, uh, having hearings as well as introducing legislation, but we're going to have some 75 recommendations or so from the Solarium Commission to report, uh, much of which will be turned into legislation. And uh, we'd like to see these bills work their way uh, through Congress. Congressman uh, Jim Lansman, really appreciate your time. All right, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.